You're listening to The Globalist First Broadcast on the 8th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility. Israel's first indication of its plans for Gaza, a permanent security presence. We'll look at this and why at possibly the most unlikely time yet, the idea of a two-state solution for Israel and Palestine is returning. Also coming up, France pledges armoured vehicles to help the Lebanese army. We'll explore the relationship between Paris and Beirut as war rages between neighbouring Israel and Gaza. Also ahead... Hello, I'm Carlotta Rebello, Monaco's senior foreign correspondent, and I'll be discussing the surprise resignation by Portuguese Prime Minister António Costa and what that means for both the country and for the European Union. Plus, half of Europe's airports are back to pre-pandemic levels. We'll hear more about that and what to do about the other half. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Israel says it's begun to ha- target Hamas fighters operating in the militant's vast tunnel network beneath Gaza. Russia has formally withdrawn from a landmark security treaty which limited the amount of key military equipment. And the amount of wine produced around the world this year is expected to drop to a six-decade low. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, we've been given an indication of what might be Israel's longer-term strategy for Gaza. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that post-war his country will take charge of the region's security. This is of course assuming that the current military operation that Israel is carrying out leads to A, the removal of Hamas and B, Israel's control of the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, the Israeli Defence Minister claims troops have fought their way into the heart of Gaza City. Yoav Gallant says that the Israel Defence Forces stormed the city from north and south. The fighting is taking place street to street. I'm joined now by James Rogers. A former correspondent in Gaza and the author of Headlines from the Holy Land, reporting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A very good morning to you, James. Good morning, Emma. So I think before we start talking about the long-term prospects for, for Gaza and its people, we can now safely say that the battle, battle for Gaza City has has begun. Yes, it looks like it. Um, the Israelis are saying that their forces are uh, in there. We've seen that both sides have uh, released video of what they say um, are their combatants in action. Of course, one of the difficulties in finding out exactly what is going on in this very bitter war of uh, claim and counterclaim is that it is extremely difficult for any kind of independent journalist to to work in uh, in Gaza City at the moment. Um, international journalists aren't allowed in the territory, uh, and many of those Palestinian journalists who are working there have been forced to flee um, with their families towards the south in order to stay safe. But it does seem, yes, as if we're, the battle is reaching, uh, you know, an extremely important stage in and around Gaza City. And we. We now have uh, reports that Israel is targeting Hamas fighters operating in this enormous tunnel network beneath Gaza. I mean, when you've worked in Gaza in the past, I mean, how significant a, a thing is this? Well, this is something that has really grown up in the last sort of 10 years, I would say. I mean, when I um, worked in the territory, which was during the second Palestinian Intifada or uprising against Israel, the tunnel's main purpose was to bring people, um, equipment, um, and also goods. I mean, there was just consumer goods were smuggled in uh, through e- from Egypt. But obviously, absolutely everything came through there. Some of the tunnels supposedly big enough to bring cars through even. People who were wanted by the Israelis could, could slip in and out of the territory there too. Since then, um, uh, what Hamas has done since it took charge of, the, of Gaza um, in 2006 uh, is to build up this network of tunnels for military purposes uh, so that they can um, prepare uh, forces there, that they can have command centres underground, um, safest place they hope out of out of the reach of Israeli airstrikes and where of course their fighters can, uh, from which they of course their fighters can emerge as we've been hearing uh, in reports um, given both by Hamas and the Israeli military to attack invading forces. 
Tell us a little bit, therefore, about the difficulties that the Israelis will face trying to um, control or take over these tunnels, given the fact that they are kilometres long, they are incredibly deeply dug down. Um, but also Hamas will know every inch of these of these tunnels. And there is an acceptance, isn't there, that both Hamas and Israel will lose people down there. Yes, very definitely. I mean, I think, you know, we've heard any number of military experts, you know, trying to assess the challenge that Israel faces, uh, you know, in the month that this war has now been going on. And of course, when you are facing uh, an enemy that knows the territory extremely well, knows the network of the tunnels, uh, and is also fighting um, uh, in, in, uh, in their home territory too, in, in familiar areas, then it is, uh, it is a massive challenge. Now, of course, um, the Israeli army vastly outnumbers and out guns Hamas, but that advantage is of course limited uh, when faced with this knowledge that Hamas have uh, of the city itself. And it's incredibly difficult. I mean, above ground, um, you know, an, an awful lot has been destroyed as well. It is not easy territory uh, even to walk or to drive a vehicle across, never mind to conduct a military operation in. Tell us, therefore, about, you know, given that context, about the difficulties, the physical difficulty of managing the terrain both above and below ground. When Benjamin Netanyahu says that Israel will take charge of the region's security, what do we know, what can we imagine that is going to look like? Well, if I'm completely honest, Emma, I'm not even sure that uh, Mr. Netanyahu and his government has really an answer to that question. For the simple reason being, you know, because of the scale of the attacks that were visited on Israel on the 7th of October, you know, the worst uh, day of death in the entire history of the 75-year history of the state of Israel, there's a feeling, obviously, in Israel that something must be done differently from before. Um, in effect, Mr. Netanyahu's policy towards Gaza over the last you know, many years, really, has been uh, a feeling there's an obligation to conduct a military operation every so many years in order to uh, prevent um, Hamas's military strength reaching a certain level. That strategy quite simply has failed. However, what we've seen so far of this military operation does not really different. It's not really different in nature. It is different in scale, of course, from anything that we've seen in Gaza, but not really different in nature. So it is difficult to know what Mr. Netanyahu actually means by this. It's very difficult to know what the plan, longer term plans for the territory might be. I do note also at the same time as Mr. Netanyahu saying that um, Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, has said that in the future, neither Israel nor Hamas uh, would rule Gaza, but Israel is going to have, you know, it, it is the territory is right next to it, and it's going to have to find a solution different to what has gone before. And the military operation, such as it unfo has unfolded so far, seems to me to differ only in scale rather than nature of what Israel has done before, ultimately unsuccessfully. And the assumption, therefore, as, as well, is that at some point there will have to be some sort of negotiation between Israel and Hamas. Well, inevitably, it's very, very difficult to see how that could take place directly at the moment. But there are brokers, um, uh, Israel, uh, Egypt, one of the countries with Arab countries with which Israel uh, had a peace treaty has, has done that previously. But again, this, we're in unprecedented territory here in the sense of the, the losses that have been incurred on both sides. 1,400 Israelis killed uh, in those attacks on um, October the 7th and, and some 10,000 Palestinians since. So it's difficult to see um, that there's any sort of political will four talks at the moment um, and, and how that process will start. But yes, of course, it does have to be. There will have to be some sort of diplomatic and political process at some point. I mean, it's something else that analysts, and, and I know I include myself in this, who observe this conflict and written about it for a long time, there is not, there is simply, there's not a straightforward, simple military solution to, to Israel's security problems. There will need at some point to be some kind of political process. But the time for that starting seems to me still to be very distant. The, 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 it is being talked about, though, that we've, we've heard about um, the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Omas, talking to Anthony Blinken, saying, I am going to, I'm happy to, to assume power in the Gaza Strip, but without war or, or violence. Um, there is that now, the, re, the, the re-emergence of that age-old idea, the two-state solution, which has been for so many years dismissed as an impossibility. Are we now looking at, at revisiting something like that? Well, I think in the sense that it's, it is, um, you know, the best, the le oh, let, let me say that it's the least bad plan that anybody has had for the region, really, uh, in the last half century. But there's, there's any number of complications to that. Um, 
Mahmoud Abbas has not had any authority uh, in Gaza for more than 15 years. It's not particularly popular uh, on the West Bank either. Um, and so it's difficult to see. The, the, the politics of the region are extremely complicated. Anybody who comes in has to be, will, will have to be able to demonstrate they're not doing Israel's will because if the bitterness and hatred between Israel and the Palestinians was deep-rooted uh, and, and had lasted for a long time. It has, it, has, it has only increased in the last month or so. In other words, the Palestinian Authority could not return from the West Bank in order to be seen to be doing Israel's bidding, and people in Gaza will simply say, well, no, we fought a war against Israel, and now you're here uh, to make sure that we don't do that anymore. Uh, so it is going to be extremely difficult. Western powers um, have historically not had a great time in the region, including this country, of course. Um, many of people in the region blame the British mandate in the last century for the situation which we find today. Uh, so it's inconceivable that any, while the European Union, for example, could uh, provide political assistance and, and aid, it's, 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 it's unforeseeable that they would have any kind of political authority. So it really does beg the question of um, who's going to take over and who's going to implement this. So yes, of course, there will have to be a political process. Yes, of course, one solution uh, is that's being mooted is the two-state solution, but that founded after endless diplomatic efforts in the 1990s and early 2000s, and it's difficult to see it being revived. All that said, um, it is the only, it is the best solution that's ever been um, put forward, even if it has never worked so far. And at the heart of this are the Palestinian people who are, we, I think we've heard reports that one and a half million people have now been internally displaced within Gaza. You talk about the European Union, you talk about Israel, and that, or everybody having skin in the game. But at the end of the day, it, it will very much depend, or will it depend on the people who are at this precise moment in, in deep catastrophe? Well, it will. Of course it will. Uh, and, and this is the other thing, because um, people, you know, some people said, well, why pointed out that people are not able to leave Gaza. There's also quite a lot of people who don't want to leave Gaza for the simple reason that there is no conflict in the world, I don't think, which has which bears such a heavy weight of history. And I've been talking to friends from Gaza, some of whom are there and some of whom who aren't. And you know, many people decide to go to leave when they've got professional opportunities to do so. And a lot of Gazans are wondering, worrying that they are facing expulsion as their ancestors did from um, Mandate Palestine in 1948. So this is really something um, in the same way that the violence that was visited on Israel on October the 7th uh, brings back terrified memories of um, the fate of the Jews in the 20th century. Uh, for the Palestinians, any idea that they might leave the territory brings back their, um, their their history of dispossession in 1948 when the state of Israel came into being. So it is extremely difficult to see what kind of solution uh, would um, would work at this stage. And also we have to remember, you know, the construction that is going to be, the reconstruction that's going to be um, required is unimaginable, particularly given that unfortunately the destruction is clearly not yet finished. James Rogers, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. It's uh, 8.13 in Paris, 7.13 here in London. Now, France has agreed to send dozens of armoured vehicles to bolster Lebanon's army. The aim is to help with security patrols in the country as fears grow of a wider destabilisation in the region because of the Israel-Hamas war. Well, Florence Biedermann is political analyst and former AFP news editor, joins you on the line from the French capital. A very good morning to you, Florence. Good morning, Emma. So could you just outline for us what France has offered to do for Lebanon? Well, actually, uh, it is uh, delivering. Uh, it will be delivering this uh, armored vehicle so that uh, the Lebanese army, which is not uh, the strongest force in the area, uh, can patrol more easily at the border, uh, where the Hamas, who is the strong military uh, power in Lebanon, uh, is kind of contained. Like there is now this real fear uh, that uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts uh, extends to Lebanon, and that Hezbollah is launching more attacks and uh, uh, the fear of a, a more global war in the area. So those vehicles will be part of these schemes like um, so to, to contain uh, uh, any military action the Hezbollah could, uh, could be willing to launch. Because there is already a United Nations peacekeeping force in Lebanon at the moment. Will, will they be working in tandem? Yes, absolutely. Uh, French, uh, there are, I think, some uh, 
uh, hundreds of French soldiers for, for this keeping force. I mean, it was supposed to be an interim keeping force. It's there like since decades now. Uh, and uh, for sure, there, there will be some uh, coordination with whatever uh, uh, means are deployed in the area to, to maintain uh, this fragile peace. Um, Lebanon, above all, does not want a war. Um, it can't afford a war, and it would be it would be stuck, wouldn't it, with with Hezbollah sponsored in the main by Iran? Um, can France do anything to to stop this? I mean, will the deployment of of the military vehicles actually help? It may help, but that France really play a decisive role in the area. You know, I mean, it's. Uh, uh, I think I think it's it's uh, somehow an illusion. Uh, Macron already tried to interfere in uh, uh, or to play a role uh, in Lebanon after the the economic collapse uh, a few years ago, and after this huge explosion that was in in the Beirut port, you know, uh, in in 2020, uh, he came and visited Lebanon. He said. France would help the country, uh, there should be an investigation, uh, the people who are responsible for this explosion that killed hundreds of people uh, should be put on trial, and then you look at what happened uh, years later and it is just like nothing, you know, nothing changed and nothing really happened. So it's a bit kind of a Macron style, you know, like a bit grandstanding, a bit, I'm very active, I'm launching initiative, I'm doing this and that. Uh, but when you look at it a few years later, I mean, it's uh, uh, the result is not that spectacular. So, what, where does Emmanuel Macron and France have their voice then? And we've we've had him talking to his Iranian Macron talking to his Iranian counterpart Ibrahim Raisi um, at the weekend, warning him about against any escalation of the conflict between Israel and Hamas, um, being very clear to Iran that. If you precipitate something, it will clearly impact Lebanon um, and that could cause an enormous amount of trouble. He's also been talking to Egypt about getting medical centres there so that they can have some sort of humanitarian assistance to those who are seriously wounded in uh, in Gaza, being able to come out and be treated there. I mean, how welcome are these interventions? I mean, you said that in, in Lebanon it, it didn't really happen, but at this precise moment when people do need a little bit of clarity and a little bit of leadership, is Macron able to help here? I think the main actors in the area are definitely not France, uh, definitely not the EU. The EU has been also trying for years, you know, to play a role in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace process. I don't know if you can use the word peace right now. It never came to nothing because the big players are the United States uh, and they are supporting Israel and, and that's it. And France by itself can play absolutely uh, no role. I mean, but but uh, you, you mentioned humanitarian aid and that is where uh, it can intervene. Uh, it is organizing uh, um, in Paris a peace forum, a yearly peace forum. And at the round of this forum, there will be a humanitarian conference uh, on uh, for Palestine for the Palestinian in Gaza. Uh, so yes, at this point of view, like uh, having people unite and uh, trying to coordinate humanitarian aid. Yes, this France can play a role, but the, the, that's that's the limit of of the game. You know, it, it cannot go much further. The point being also that the problem is Israel does not let this humanitarian aid enter, or just very very scarcely. So. And um, there is nothing France can do at this level tell, to tell, change uh, Israel's mind. So tell us a little bit more about the P- Paris Peace Forum and whether in that context things, something good could come of it. Well, the Peace Forum is something like larger where you, you speak of global governance, of uh, uh, climate change and artificial intelligence. So th- there are people meeting, uh, they are discussing, and of course you can consider it's always good when people meet uh, and discuss, which is in, in, per se positive. Uh, what it will reach on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is definitely, uh, yes, maybe pledge of uh, of uh, aid, more money uh, being uh, given to Gaza, maybe for the reconstruction. I mean, it's a bit early to talk about this right now. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, the kind of um, of conference of uh, event it is. How is Emmanuel Macron's response and France's wider response to to the Israel-Hamas conflict being received uh, domestically? There have, as have been the case, as has been the case in lots of countries, um, incidents of anti-Semitism. Um, but it's a it's a it's a really rather sensitive topic for for Emmanuel Macron, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, France uh, hosts one of the biggest uh, Jewish community in uh, in Western Europe. Has also a very big community of uh, North African Arab or Muslim descent. So uh, this is definitely a topic that polarize and that plays a big role even in French politics right now, you know. I mean, there is a big divide uh, between uh, those who support, I would say, really uh, very strongly and nearly unconditionally Israel and all the critics, uh, like on the extreme left, for example, uh, who consider France is not uh, enough uh, supporting uh, the Palestinian side. So there was, as you said, an incredible surge in anti-Semitic acts, like I think it was more than a thousand like since uh, this war started. And it is definitely a topic that is that preoccupies Macron because he knows he has to kind of strike a balance uh, on what he says uh, on Israel and on, uh, on Gaza uh, so that it doesn't inflame even more the atmosphere in France, which is already, as I said, tense like they are. Uh, demonstration, pro-Palestinian demonstration, pro-Israeli, you know, it's, it's just at the center of uh, politics right now. And, well, it's not just that, you know, for the last couple of years, we have seen criticism of Emmanuel Macron taking a, a publicly more anti-Muslim stance as well, in the, especially in the run-up to the elections. And he's and, and a little while ago, Macron was struggling to find a representative for Islam in France. So that is a problem that is already pre-existing, isn't it? Well, I am not sure you would agree. <laughs> now, anti-Muslim seems a bit strong. Like, uh, let's say um, the Muslim community considers that its not uh, its sensitivities are not taken seriously enough. So, um, as you know, there was some riots in in in, uh, in the suburbs recently, uh, and you know, the, it, it, it's it's a complex uh, situation uh, where you have to take into consideration uh, uh, every side of the questions, but. Uh, anti-Muslim. I wouldn't say anti-Muslim, but in this uh, in this question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, he certainly, at the start, did support Israel without, uh, you know, any um, any hint of uh, we should maybe see the other side. I mean, it, it was a bit one-sided. But he managed after that. You know, he went to visit Israel and he met Mahmoud Abbas. So he's trying to manage. I mean, again, a more balanced. Uh, attitude now saying we should support Gaza, we should do the, uh, so that uh, he reached kind of uh, an equilibrium. Florence Biederman, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme. Final call for all Monocle Radio listeners will be asking how European airports are bouncing back after the pandemic. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio, Somnus Batabil, lecturer in media and development and international journalism at SOAS. Welcome back to the paper review, Somnus. Morning, morning. How are what, you doing? Absolutely fine. I think you've got a bit of a shock because you haven't done this for a while, have you? I know, it's been a year or so. I didn't, I mean, I just figuring out how difficult it is to get up. Where you, up. How do you do this? Where We don't. Where have you been all this time? It's great to see you back. In um, bed, in bed. In de- so <laughs> <laughs> we've been, uh, well, you've been doing the heavy lifting for us in terms of the papers this morning. Um, let's begin with an article in The Telegraph, which is talking about the air quality in Delhi again. I mean, this is a perpetual problem, but this is, this is particularly bad, isn't it? Particularly bad. Be- I mean, it's a humanitarian disaster. 33 million people in Delhi and the air quality. I mean, WHO has its index at 500. It cannot measure beyond that. And we are at 473. This is extreme. Uh, Only Lahore, 
has a worse air quality. So we're talking of uh, children, cognitive abilities, respiratory diseases. Hospitals are seeing a huge surge in people coming in. And again, the government's response is always a sticking plaster. So there is no long-term vision. And this has been going on since the 1990s when I used to report on the streets uh, of Delhi um, that each year there's a cycle and every time, just before winter and during winter when it spikes, we have conversations around it and then it kind of subs- uh, you know, goes down. Diwali is coming around the corner and you'll see even, a, I mean, I don't know how they'll measure once the firecracker starts going off. Um, the government is trying to restrict the sales, uh, trying to uh, restrict vehicular pollution. But these are all very short term. For those of us who've never been and experienced the the toxicity of the air in Delhi, what's it like to operate in? Because the the Telegraph today is talking about the fact that children are being told not to school, go to go to school, uh, the elderly are being told to go indoors, um, hospitals are having issues with this, you know, the surging number of people coming in seeking help. This is something which is, which is day to day, I don't think you can imagine what it must be like. It's, I mean, mean, you... One of the things which, I mean, just going slightly beyond this, uh, the remit of this, the English players who have been doing tremendously, very badly in the World Cup have been complaining about the air quality in Delhi, that it just feels very heavy to even breathe, that no one's trained for this. And we're talking about calling off uh, the um, matches in Delhi. So it's that bad for people who just go in, especially athletes. But living on a day-to-day basis, you know, it's like a a frog in already in boiling water. You do not realize until you die. It's pretty much that, that you cannot... The difference perhaps is not felt every day, but when doctors examine a child's lungs, it's like a heavy smoker's lungs. That's in It's black in color. Compare it with somebody living in the mountains, it, the difference is palpable. And this, again, I was covering it in the mid-90s when air pollution quality was very bad and we had to introduce CNG in vehicles and it came down a bit. But again, just the sh- the increase in population, in construction. One of the main reasons for um, this problem is also crop burning in, in Punjab. Because of poverty, many farmers do not use methods for recycling this, uh, you know, and use the cheaper versions. So that really spikes it up. Uh, during the winters, atmospheric changes in atmospheric levels will trap air pollutants. Again, that goes up. Uh, firecrackers again, construction, uh, use of old vehicles. But these are problems because it's a poor country. We talk about India as a third, you know, the, its GDP levels, but we forget that 400 million people live below the poverty line. And these are problems which poor people face. Uh, there are 13 coal mines around in a three, uh, in a 300 kilometer radius of Delhi, which do not use proper purifiers. They're all because people cannot afford to, and again, it affects the poor disparately because you cannot use air purifiers. You cannot afford not to go out of your homes. You do not live in areas which are, uh, you know, away from polluting uh, industries. Despite that air affects everyone, it's always the poor which gets hit a bit harder. Let's move on to a story in The Guardian today, um, which is uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has agreed a historic, stricter migration policy. And this is is in the context of um, there are border checks appearing across the European Union at the moment. And um, we have a large number of migrants arriving in Germany, probably not as bad as in 2015 when there was the enormous crisis. But there is a pattern emerging here, here, isn't there, that quite a lot of the founding principles of the European Union, free movement of people, human rights, all that kind of stuff, is now getting to the point where even Germany is having to say, this isn't working. Yeah, I mean, it's just bad news for if you are, you know, escaping persecution, death, war, uh, natural disasters, that all the safe havens are being taken away. And you look at this in relation to what has just happened, the deal between Italy, Italy and uh, Albania. Sorry, my morning, <coughs> morning uh, the words I get. Uh, so um, in, respo- 
if you see that, now Italy has signed a deal with Tirana which says that 36,000 asylum seekers will be processed each year there. Germany's response, uh, not necessarily response, but responding to an internal crisis. Um, if you see German politics at the moment, you know, uh, AFD surging in its um, popularity rating. So it's almost a reaction that you have to do something about it. But as you said, these are all short-term plastering effects. Yes. And there will be the knock-on effect. And I think the warning will has come from the Green Party and they, they did an interview with Did Sight yeah. saying that actually if you suddenly start to raise issues in terms of migration numbers, when it comes to day-to-day handling of it in communities, people will become less tolerant of migrants. I mean, the, because, the, the rhetoric because is so, so toxic around migrants. You've got everywhere. one, journey, you've got one path here. Yeah, it's... it's I mean, and, and this is also the case as much in Britain and, you know, um, when you push right-wing populist policies, this will keep happening but taking away or uh, you know or benefits for migrants who are already very desperate it just as you said the green party spokesman has already said that this will just make integration more and more difficult indeed it's not the 2015 situation but long term you see europe becoming a far less tolerant uh, block of countries and this was a safe haven for a very long time we had a fantastic integration policy which is just being taken away and and the the rise in disasters in many areas of the global south is just going to increase in the next 20 years. Finally, Somnath, uh, you will be blissfully uh, untouched by this dreadful <laughs> problem because you gave up drinking in the pandemic. I think you're the only person in the world who did. Um, tell us a little bit more about this issue of uh, extreme weather is going to have a direct effect on the amount of wine that it will be produced this year. Back worse than 60 years, apparently. 1961, yes. I mean, you know, if all my uh, early morning bad stories drives you to drinking, you have bad, more bad news. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so um, it seems that extreme weather condition, early frost, heavy rainfall and drought are bringing down production levels in all of the major countries except France. France has managed to stick on, but there's a production drop in Australia, Argentina, Chile, South Africa, Brazil, everywhere. There's been a major drop in production. Uh, But France somehow has, um, despite all its troubles, holds on to producing enough wine for everyone else. But it also seems that uh, the global wine producers are saying that uh, because of the uh, producing less, the stock huge stocks will be cleared. So there's no immediate worry, Emma. You, you. Uh, the wine bottles at Tesco's and at Waitrose will still be there. <laughs> Somnath, I'm so glad to hear it. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. That was Somnath Batabiel. The time here in London, 7.32. A quick look now at the latest headlines on The Globalist. Saudi Arabia says it'll host several summits of Arab and Islamic nations to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the next few months. Meanwhile, Israel says it's begun to target Hamas fighters operating in the militants' vast tunnel network beneath Gaza. Russia has formally withdrawn from a landmark security treaty which limits the amount of key military equipment. The 1990 Treaty on Conventional Armed Forces in Europe was signed a year after the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was designed to prevent either side in the Cold War from amassing forces for a swift attack on the other in Europe. And the amount of wine produced around the world this year is expected to drop to a six-decade low. The International Organization of Vine and Wine says bad weather, including frost, heavy rainfall and drought, are all to blame for the drop, which is expected to be about 7% lower than last year. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Portugal's Prime Minister António Costa has resigned after police raided his official residence, two government ministries and detained his chief of staff. The raids are part of a corruption investigation involving lithium and so-called green hydrogen deals. Mr Costa says he has a clear conscience and complete trust in justice. Well, to tell us more, Carlotta Rabella joins me. She's Monocle's senior foreign correspondent. Good morning, Carlotta. Good morning, Emma. So tell us what's happened, because I think this has come as an enormous surprise to everybody outside Portugal, at least. 
No, it was definitely a surprise resignation yesterday by Portugal's Prime Minister António Costa, uh, which, of course, plunged the government into chaos, his unexpected resignation. Now, it came hours after police raided his official residence and uh, arrested his chief of staff and also raided two ministries involved in this investigation. This is all part of this corruption probe. Now, it is important to stress that António Costa himself has not been charged or accused. He's just one of the parties being investigated and uh, what has emerged in the um, hours since is that um, the reason he got implicated in this is due to uh, wiretapping of other people where his name was mentioned. So there is no evidence linking him to any of the allegations um, as of yet, um, which of course uh, puts a renowned um, uh, puts a renewed stress on the public prosecutor to actually uh, come up with something because otherwise uh, this is a, quite a serious accusation that has led to um, a government uh, to fall. How much of a shock has this been for Portugal? Was there any indication that there were investigations into corruption? Uh, there had been a few uh, ongoing investigations within his government that had to do with ministers who in the meantime have resigned or been forced out. Um, so I think it came quite as a shock that this had happened this was forced on Costa himself uh, at the end of the day. You know, um, his, the country's leadership has been uh, quite stable since 2015. His party, the Socialists, have been in power since then, um, uh, being re-elected in 2019 and once again in 2022. So um, the fact that this uh, all came to a sort of an abrupt end uh, yesterday came as a bit of a shock, you know. Yes, so, so um, Portugal now has no prime minister. What what does this mean for the way that the country is being governed? Uh, well, so uh, today the president is meeting with the party leaders to kind of figure out what happens next. And tomorrow he's meeting with the Council of State. That's an uh, external body of uh, an advisory body to the president uh, that helps decide on state matters. And it's after these two crucial meetings um, that um, we will know what will happen. Now, uh, Pre- President Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa had said in the past, if for any reason this government wasn't able to fulfill um, uh, its term that he would call for um, early elections. Um, so we shall see if he will uh, go ahead and fulfill what he had said previously. The options here are either to nominate a caretaker a prime minister within the socialists to continue the rest of the term or to indeed call for snap elections. Now, snap elections open up a really dangerous window in Portugal because the far right has been slowly rising and um, the main opposition party, PSD, that's the Social Democrats, the centre-right, um, are not in a strong position that they could perhaps um, win the election. So there is a real risk that the far right could be the kingmaker here if uh, new elections are called. And that's what a lot of analysts are fearful of as well. And internationally speaking, the position that the Portugal now occupies. I mean, there had been a sense that because Antonio Costa has been around for so long, a good seven, eight years, um, despite various moments of of popularity and unpopularity, the fact that he was such a long serving prime minister had stood him in very, very good stead for being um, the post of European Council president when eventually he left. I mean, this will now, well, do we know whether this could now happen? Well, it's very unlikely now because even if uh, eventually Costa get it gets proven that there, there is no involvement, these criminal investigations take quite a long time, and the post of European Council President is up for grabs from next year. Now, Costa had been, as you mentioned, uh, uh, tipped as the person who would likely su- succeed Charles Michel. Um, this completely changes things, so it shows how um, this is all having an impact beyond domestic politics. Costa was widely liked within European circles on all sides of the political spectrum. He was seen as a face of stability. Um, You know, he was prime minister uh, when Portugal went through its tourism boom and the recovery from, um, uh, led the recovery from the pandemic and all of that. So he has been seen as a face of stability. Having said that, of course, there are problems back home. Um, As many countries in Europe, Portugal is facing a cost of living crisis and Costa had been battling with crisis 
violences and protests in the health, education and housing uh, sectors, uh, an issue that is common to many European cities um, in 2023. But despite that, he internationally was very much liked and seen as this um, face of stability and of uh, having brought Portugal uh, forward when it comes to tourism and the economy. So uh, the next two two days will be decisive in uh, what the future of the country might look like. Carlotta, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. a.m. in Kyiv, 2.40 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Now, the poet Taras Shevchenko is considered one of the most important figures in Ukrainian literature, called a genius and prophet of the nation. Shevchenko also hated Russians. In his poem Katerina, he warned women not to fall in love with them. Well, Taras Shevchenko may well have died a century and a half ago in 1861, but his voice and his poetry are still ferociously relevant. Ukrainian children learn about him at school. His monuments are all around the country. But it now appears that Russia is using Ukraine's enduring love for Taras Shevchenko for cultural propaganda. Fake poems purportedly written by him are circulating online. And Volodymyr Yemolenko is a philosopher, president of Penn Ukraine and hosts the Explaining Ukraine podcast. I'm delighted that he joins me down the line now. Very good morning to you, Volodymyr. Good morning. Thank you for inviting. We can't underestimate how important a figure Shevchenko is in, in, in Ukrainian culture and, and society, is he? Indeed, uh, I mean he's uh, he's a classic, right? Nineteenth-century classic, which is which is a, a typical story for many national literatures uh, in Europe and beyond. But uh, the difference is that Shevchenko is really considered as our contemporary, probably. So his lines are repeated; they, they're painted on walls; they are they're used as, as memes, and uh, as if he he is our con- uh, contemporary. So. I don't really think that many cultures, many literatures in the world have this 19th century classic who is still considered as as, as a person uh, whose, whose lines you take really as slogans or memes even. Tell us a little bit more about why he, his words are so powerful. I mean, I'm going to ask you to read some poetry, actually. I think you have a, a poem called The Caucasus that you want to read out loud. His Poems are powerful because he is considered as one of the fathers of the Ukrainian nation. Uh, because when he was, he was by, by the way a, a serf by 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 birth. So really, a lot of his poems can be read as a kind of a abolitionist literature. Uh, and he actually died on, on the year when the serfdom was cancelled in the Russian Empire. And uh, at the same time, uh, like for Ukrainians. Uh, for Ukrainian intellectual culture, he's a person who who literally took the idea of Ukraine out of the oblivion. So many people consider him as a person who who gave this rebirth to the very idea of Ukraine. When when Ukraine as a political idea was totally dominated by the Russian Empire and and the and the and the roots of the Ukrainian and Ukrainian Cossack political culture and political history were, were almost eradicated. Um, so he, he did the impossible, and, and therefore we consider him as, as our founding father. Uh, I, I really want to read these lines, very famous li- lines from the poem Caucasus, and it's important that it's, it, it is a poem about the fight of the, of the nations of the Caucasus against the Russian Empire as well. So we see that parallels in the way how uh, Ukrainians, for example, were, were looking at this, at this fight. And the, uh, the lines are these, I, I will read in Ukrainian, Boritesya poborete, vam boh pomahaya, za vas pravda, za vas slava i volja svetaya. And in English translated by John Weir, keep fighting, you're sure to win. God helps you in your fight. For fame and freedom march with you, and right is on your side. So you can see how decisive these lines are. Primarily, this "borite sepoborete," which means that you fight and you will sh- you will surely win um, in this struggle. And I think, therefore, 
these lines are very important today when Ukraine is again and again a, a target of the Russian invasion and, and cruelty. Volodymyr, just tell us a little bit about these fake poems which are circulating, which are supposed to be by um, Taras Shevchenko, but they're clearly not. What's a, What's in them and why are they so dangerous? Well, it's not the first time when somebody uh, is using... Uh, the image of Ukrainian poets like Taras Shevchenko to to spread uh, to spread basically mistrust between citizens and uh, there are some uh, suspicion that it might be Russian propaganda because uh, uh, it is trying it has always been trying you know uh, to uh, to create these cracks in the society to 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 create mistrust between one categories of citizens and other categories of citizens or between citizens and the government and what this poem which is the fake poem which is really written in in the style of Shevchenko with his rhythm with you with his way of uh, doing uh, rhymes but of course in a, in a very simplified way what is it is saying is that well you the poor you look how greedy the the rich guys are and how horrible the government is and um, and therefore you'd rather has a, a big mistrust to them and i think this is one of the lines of the propaganda war and information war because information war of, of russia against ukraine is not only about spreading fake news it's also about seeding mistrust it's also about demolarizing it's also about you know creating a feeling of a Ukrainian citizen that the fight is not worse and uh, and the government is corrupt, etc., etc. And uh, I think, yeah, we, we should be very, very attentive to this. It's an interesting idea, isn't it, that spreading fake poetry online is a genuine weapon here in 2023 because I can't think of many nations whose adherence to... A poet from the 19th century is such that to have a fake poem um, broadcast or, or disseminated by him is a, is a culturally damaging, in fact, nationally damaging moment of importance. Well, yeah, because, I mean, poetry for Ukrainians is is, is a very important thing. And uh, Shevchenko is a figure, as I said earlier, one of the founding fathers and uh, in the 19th century, 20th century peasants, you would have the Shevchenko portraits, who are put on the wall next to next to you know religious icons. So um, this really um, is is very deeply linked. Uh, his poetry is very deeply linked with the sentiment of the of the people. And when people read it, uh, thinking it is Shevchenko, they're saying, "Oh yeah, he he knew that uh, already in the 19th century, so he grasped it all right." And and we should be, you know, really mistrustful to to the people around us. And uh, I think this this cultural element and information element is is really one of the powerful emotional uh, weapons during the war because the war is of course uh, very painful and very tragic but there are there is a war on the battlefield but there, there is also this war for hearts and minds which which Russians are very keen at actually Volodymyr Yermolenko, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Ukraine you're listening to Monocle Radio this is the globalist <laughs> UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's get the latest business news from Rachel Puppetzoni. She's national business reporter and presenter at ABC News. She joins us now from Perth. A very good afternoon to you, Rachel. Hi there, Emma. So um, let's talk about interest rates. Uh, the fact is that everybody else kept their interest rates the same last week, but apart from Australia. Yeah, we like to do things a little differently down here. Uh, much to the disappointment, I think, of uh, many borrowers who uh, now have their interest rate uh, increased by another quarter of a percentage point. So we're up to 4.5%. Uh, now, this is lower um, than the sort of official cash rate 
from our peers like the US Federal Reserve, uh, the Bank of England, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, Bank of Canada and the European Central Bank, who have all recently um, met and kept their interest rates on hold. Uh, so, you know, if we were following the trend, we wouldn't have had an interest rate here this week, but it uh, seems like we're a bit of an outlier. Some economists argue it's because of the way our borrowing system is set up. We have a lot more people in Australia on variable home loans um, than on fixed, and so we're seeing this much bigger impact from the rate hikes that have been passed through. Um, this week's was the 13th rate hike, um, but still much lower than, than sort of the US Fed, for example. But that's because so many borrowers there are on fixed mortgages. So the impact of those rate hikes isn't as broad-based. Interestingly, uh, yesterday when when the central bank here announced the interest rate hike, it was one of the busiest days in terms of audience feedback that we had on our website. Uh, Hundreds of people commenting on how concerned they were, how they were going to manage this increase uh, in, you know, an essential um, service of keeping their roof over their heads. Uh, The Reserve Bank governor saying that inflation, while it is on the way down, it just isn't going down as fast as they want. Everyone's sort of crossing their fingers that this will be the last one uh, and that we will kind of move in step with other central banks and stay on hold um, with that higher for longer sort of mantra that we've been speaking about for a few months now. Um, let's talk about a story which is is moving uh, at the moment, which is uh, the fact that I think a very, very large communications company in uh, in Australia um, has had a rather bad day with, with, t- with 10 million Australians without any kind of connection. Yeah, that's right. Optus is our second biggest telco uh, and 10 million Australians, as you said, that's almost half of our 25 million population, uh, were without their um, telecommunications services today, be that mobile, uh, their fixed phones at home, their internet services. Uh, 400,000 businesses were without service. So uh, it's not just, I guess, people who rely on Optus for their own services, but those doing business with those businesses were unable to transact. Uh, payments were unable to be made. Uh, people couldn't contact uh, emergency services. I've read all uh, a number of accounts of people having to sort of run out onto the street and try and knock on neighbours' doors to call triple zero to call an ambulance. So there's been really broad ramifications from that. Um, Hospitals unable to to, um, make uh, phone calls. Uh, As I said, businesses uh, out of action. The CEO of Optus today said that they still don't know exactly what happened. They've ruled out a cyber attack. The company was the subject of a cyber attack a couple of years ago and 2 million people's, um, the data of 2 million people was was stolen uh, in that attack. They've ruled that out, but they still don't know exactly what caused the problem. Uh, Services have started to be restored a few hours ago, but with 10 million Australians affected, that will take some time. And of course, the conversation now is turning to compensation um, for people who've who've no doubt lost money um, being unable to do business today. Uh, let's move to China. Um, that we have the perpetual um, problems that are being experienced by property developers there. Um, there's a sense that, or there's a, there's a there's a rule that uh, sorry, it's, there's a there's report, sorry, I should say that um, a property developer is is being taken over, or is it, or is being helped. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the the property market uh, in China is such a big um, aspect of of their economy. It accounts for um, a quarter of of their economy that's in terms of um, the construction of property. Uh, But we've seen over the last 12, 18 months or so, a number of these big property developers get into real strife. And one of those is called Country Garden. Now, Reuters, which is a a big news agency, is reporting today that an insurer called Ping An has been asked by uh, a government entity to take a controlling stake in country garden to try to help its recovery. Um, both parties uh, are denying those reports, but Reuters is, is quoting a, uh, up to sort of half a dozen um, sources confirming this information. It wouldn't be the first time that Ping An has been asked by the government to help a, com- a company that was in trouble. And Ping An, uh, up until at least August, when uh, data from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange was last captured, showed that it had a 4.99% stake in 
Country Garden. So already has some kind of involvement in the business. Country Garden has a, a debt of 190 billion US dollars. It's got more than 3,000 projects under development, uh, and it has missed numerous deadlines to pay back debts, and has said it won't be able to pay back all its debts. So um, we've been able, unable to confirm this for ourselves, but Reuters is a very reputable news agency, uh, and we know that this is an, an industry that is struggling and one that the Chinese government doesn't want to see collapse. So uh, there may be more developments on this story as the days progress. Rachel Puppetsoni, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. today, travelling through some of Europe's major airports this summer, you may have thought that the empty check-in desks and departure lounges during COVID were pure fantasy because three years later, nearly half of airports in Europe have reached pre-pandemic traffic volumes. Well, Paul Charles is the CEO of the luxury travel PR firm, the PC Agency, and a regular voice here on Monocle Radio. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Anna. So just to explain to us, I mean, nearly half have reached pre-pandemic traffic levels. That means that more than half haven't. We'll come to those in a moment. But those who have done well, what's happened? It's a very mixed picture, as you say, and these are official figures which are out from ACI Europe, um, which publishes uh, its regular reports on how many of us are travelling through airports. But essentially, you've got a picture where the southern Mediterranean has done pretty well, but the northern part of Europe has not done so well. You've got the likes of Paris, uh, Amsterdam, Schiphol, Frankfurt, which are still down pretty substantially, sort of 12 to 15 percent on the levels of passengers that were going through their airports in 2019. And you've got a picture in southern Europe where the likes of Greece are seeing more positive figures. They're up sort of around 10 percent or so. So I think it's down to a combination of factors, essentially uh, management and how engaged they've been in getting their airports back in good working order post-pandemic, but also significant factors like um, forest fires, for example, affecting traffic during the summer in certain parts of Europe, or whether their air traffic control systems were subject to strike action and industrial action. So certain factors which have affected different airports in different ways. And there's also the sense that if you are, if, if southern European airports are doing extremely well, there's a suggestion that actually those who are doing well are capitalising on leisure travel. They are sub- substantially, and we know that business traffic has still not recovered in any way to what it was pre-COVID. Uh, uh, business traffic is still only pretty well 60 to 70% of what it was. And what we've seen is a huge surge in the numbers of premium travellers who are travelling. Uh, if you've been lucky enough to fly in a business or a first-class cabin in recent months, you'll have seen they're pretty well full. And of course, airlines are charging much higher prices. So we're seeing a new trend emerge of more premium travellers travelling for leisure who are prepared to pay much more to be at the front of the plane. At the other end of the scale, there's expansion, massive expansion from ultra low cost carriers, which it's been reported is contributing to certain airports doing particularly well because they will operate with with the budget airlines. So are we seeing, Paul, a moment where... Business class is doing well. A £25 flight where you just put a rucksack under your front and under your seat is doing very well. But the the middle area is going to be pinched. Yes, as in most sectors, there isn't much room in the middle. You're you're either really high end or you're at the low end. There's no room for uh, for uh, in, in aviation as much as in other sectors, a sort of Woolworths, if you like, of the middle ground. Um so, yes, I think what we're seeing is the end of the low-cost flight. There's no doubt about that. Even in these turbulent economic times, airlines are still charging a lot of money in the low-cost sector. Even the likes of Ryanair, they're doing very well on the back of greater passenger demand. So even if we're flying at the back of the plane uh, with with very little luggage, we're not happy um, sorry, we are happy to pay the fares, the prices that, that uh, the low-cost carriers are wanting to charge. They're all growing very well. Wizz Air, Ryanair, EasyJet, they're having a golden period as well. So long may it continue. Where does this leave the airports? Because uh, an airline can flex its pricing power. It can, um, well, until I think the King's Speech in the United Kingdom today said that, that there's going to be a problem with the so-called drip pricing where you pay a budget fare and then everything else you, you have to pay for. Um where does this now leave airports? Because 
they can't really have that amount of flexibility when charging passengers. But also, you know, inflation is not going away for airports. It affects them as much as it does the airlines. Absolutely. The costs at airports are running um, very high indeed. Uh, you're seeing uh, worker wages rise. That's why you're seeing significant industrial action continue in parts of Europe, especially at airports. You've got suppliers payments who are rising, costs of running those airports, running the escalators, lifts, um, all of the ground functions are, are much more expensive than they used to be. So yes, I think inflation is going to continue to be an issue. And of course, the airports want to charge a lot more. They want to put higher passenger charges, those fees that we pay that are embedded within our air ticket. They want to put more through, but the airlines are, are, are really pushing back. They're saying, you can't charge us more. We don't believe passengers will pay a lot more on their tickets. But I have to say, the evidence shows that we are resilient as consumers at the moment, that we are prepared to pay more on those tickets, whatever it takes to get to that destination. So the airlines are getting back to substantial profitability on the back of us as consumers still wishing to fly um, as much as possible and pay as much as the airlines will ask. So the airports inevitably will benefit from that later this year. Paul Charles, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Isabella Jewell. Our researchers are Julia Lasica and Harrison Warlock and our studio manager is Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. 